0: My name is Jean-Paul Faguet. I'm a professor of the Political Economy of Development in the Department of International Development here at the LSE. And it's my great pleasure and honor to introduce a friend and colleague, um, Professor Jose Antonio Campo, who's, who has so many attributes and so many uh, achievements in his career, both on the academic side and uh, in terms of policy and international institutions that it's, it's actually difficult to try to summarize. So I'm just going to pick a few highlights so as not to go on for too long. José well, Antonio is it's one of the great Latin Americans in the world of policy and also thinking today. Um, he's currently professor at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs. He's a member of the Committee on Global Thought there. Um, and he's also co-president with Joe Stiglitz of the Initiative for Policy Dialogue. Um, In the past, he has served as Minister of Finance of Colombia, also the Chairman of the Board of the Central Bank of Colombia, on whose governing board he currently sits. He's also been Minister of Planning and Minister of Agriculture. On the academic side, he's Professor at Colombia, as I said. He's also Professor at Universidad de los Andes in in Bogota, and he's been Professor in the past at the National University of Colombia, as well as Visiting Fellow at Cambridge, Oxford, and Yale. His list of publications is enormous. His, um, his greatest expertise areas are development economics and economic history, and a particular passion of his is reform of the international financial system and especially the IMF, about which he'll be speaking tonight. So please join me for, to give José Antonio Campo a warm
1: welcome. Well, let me... Uh uh, start by thanking the Professor Jean-Paul Faget for, uh, for the invitation, for this uh, uh, extremely kind uh, introduction, and um, and of course all of you for for coming. I, I'm going to um, uh, to present today uh, a an issue uh, uh, that uh, I, I have done a, quite an extensive research. In in fact, I. I published a, a, a book on this topic. Uh, I'll have the advertisement at the end <laughs> for the book. It's actually a free access book, so any of you can actually, although published by Oxford University Press, uh, it's a free access book. Uh, this is my has been a novelty for me and uh, actually I'm quite impressed how useful it is, for example, for international, uh, so anybody from any part of the world can ask for me I say, oh, here, here it goes. Anyway, it's, um, uh, it's a topic uh, I, I wrote a, a book uh, about uh, and uh, I have continued to be on top of this issue. I, I've been quite associated to, uh, to this topic of the international monetary system. Uh, Uh, I I added this uh, developing country perspective, uh, so I'm I'm not going to talk today about some of the, uh, you know, global issues, let's say, Uh, 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 or or only partially so. For example, this issue of international monetary cooperation among industrial countries, which is a a very important topic I'm not going to talk about, although I will talk about uh, something about the global reserve system, as it is called, which is the core of the system, uh, because of the implications for developing countries, uh, so so this is I'm going to uh, take uh, the issues that are more relevant for developing countries uh, as the topic, uh, and that's why I added uh, the subtitle <laughs> to the uh, to the talk. Let me start by by you know defining what are the characteristics of the international monetary system that we have today, and as you see in the in the title, uh, and it's the title of my book. I say non-system. Uh, 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 this uh, uh, Actually, uh, uh, we must remember that the, um, uh, the, uh, big, uh, one of the big agreements at the end of the Second World War uh, was the Bretton Woods Agreement, which actually uh, uh, turned 75 this year, uh, to create the World Bank and International Monetary Fund. Okay? Uh, and, uh, uh, and that system, which had this characteristic, basically uh, uh, it was based uh, uh, on a mix of gold and dollars, uh, is a system that collapsed in 1971. Uh, and out of that came, uh, what you can say, although there were actual negotiations to try to design a kind of second Bretton Woods from 1972 to 1974, those negotiations failed. Uh, and uh, and what, what happened afterwards is basically a, a, you know, a de facto a solution, let's say, of, of pieces. That were adopted actually different times uh, and in the 1970s uh, uh, actually lots of the discussion of that say that you know what was turning out to be uh, is a non-system <laughs> and so i decided to take that concept in my book that in fact this is a kind of non-system it's a pieces of, of of something that uh, do not necessarily fit together uh, you know extremely well So what are the characteristics? First of all, the the old uh, global reserve system, which was based on on this mix of gold and dollars, uh, at a fixed uh, value of of gold in terms of dollars, uh, was replaced uh, by a system in which, uh, uh, let's say, uh, uh, in convertible uh, dollars, uh, in convertible for gold, that means, uh, or you can say fiduciary dollars, uh, became the ce- the central money uh, uh, of the system uh, that of course uh, 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 actually that uh, in, a, in a sense uh, uh, you know, allows for other currencies to to also be reserved currencies so there is no legal monopoly of the u s dollar but the u s dollar as we will see uh, totally dominates uh, the system uh, uh, and of course uh, 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 it marginalizes developing countries from uh, the creation of global money. Uh, uh, I'll talk a, a bit about that also in my presentation. I mean, the only uh, uh, currency that uh, has some expectation uh, of becoming a global currency is the renminbi, the Chinese uh, currency. Uh, but uh, still, as we will see, it occupies a very minor uh, part of the, of the system. Then, there is this idea of some monetary cooperation uh, and the role uh, uh, of the IMF in terms of surveillance of the monetary policies, including of developed countries, Um, uh, uh, but most of the cooperation, uh, although the surveillance is formally done by the IMF, but most of the cooperation that has taken place uh, really uh, uh, happens outside the IMF. Uh, in the previously the G7 and now partially also in the G20. Uh, uh, the third characteristic of, the, of this uh, system, let's say, is that uh, 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 the countries can choose the exchange rate system that they want. Uh, in, the, uh, in the Bretton Woods system, uh, the idea would be that uh, was that countries will have a fixed exchange rate, vis-à-vis the dollar. Uh, uh, and then they they could modify that uh, parity. Uh, In fact, not everyone had a parity, but anyway, that's a a, a story of the past. But now uh, countries can choose. They can choose whether they have a fixed exchange rate (coughs) vis-a-vis the dollar or the euro or whatever they want. Uh, uh, Or they can float or they can uh, have limited flexibility of their currency. So there is no uh, rule, let's say, about the choice uh, of the exchange rate system. The only condition in the jargon of the, of the agreement uh, of 1976 uh, that was reached in, th- in this regard is that they could not manipulate the, the exchange rate, uh, which is, a, of course, a, a big topic uh, uh, again now because the, the United States accused China of manipulating the, uh, the exchange rate. Uh, in fact, the, one of the basic problems with this is that nobody has ever defined what manipulation is. Uh, so, so it's a nominal concept uh, uh, with no real contents. Uh, about, uh. in fact, the IMF has, uh, for a long, for several years now, said that, the, that China does not manipulate its currency. Uh, I- if anything, is avoiding a, a a depreciation of the not, a, not 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 strong. Um, appreciation of the currency. Uh, the fourth issue, uh, which was actually a big change uh, in a sense, uh, is a significant degree of capital account liberalization. Uh, a, a basic agreement at Bretton Woods uh, between the Harry Dexter White, the US negotiator, and, and John Maynard Keynes, the, the, uh, the British negotiator, uh, was that they, uh, that there will be uh, uh, convertibility of current transactions, or tr- basically to uh, able to rec- recover uh, trade uh, after the collapse that had taken place in the 1930s and the Second World War, uh, so they could not manip- you know, manipulate current account transactions or you can say eliminate gradually uh, exchange restrictions on trade, uh, but that any country could uh, manage uh, uh, rules on capital flows as they want, uh, So there was no freedom of capital movements, they say, in the agreement. Um, uh, in fact, uh, although there was an attempt uh, in uh, uh, actually in the Hong Kong meetings of the IMF in, in 1997, uh, uh, pushed by the then managing director, Michel Candesou. Uh, with a strong uh, uh, push by the United States to establish also the, uh, the uh, obligation to liberalize uh, capital flows, uh, that agreement was not accepted. Um, uh, I, I actually happen to be have been finance minister uh, and representative of Colombia and I was chosen by Latin Americans to speak in the name of Latin America opposing our uh, uh, that proposal, and actually we succeeded. I mean, developing countries uh, actually were able to uh, avoid that. But nonetheless, uh, there has been a, a, an important liberalisation of capital flows. Uh, 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 although, as we will see in my graphs, uh, that liberalisation has stopped uh, uh, now for some years, for several years. And uh, but anyway, the, in In the 1980s, 1990s, uh, there was an important liberalization of the capital capital account. And then there were uh, another series of of decisions regarding uh, the the, the ways to manage, to prevent and then to manage financial crisis, uh, which... uh, uh, were particularly important um, uh, after the 2008-2009 uh, the, uh, 2000, crisis, uh, uh, which I actually call the North Atlantic financial crisis. Uh, and the financial crisis happened in developing countries. They have names, Latin American crisis, the East Asian crisis, but if they happen in the U.S. and Western Europe, they are global.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah, they, they, were, they had global effects, but it was a, a crisis of the U.S. and Western Europe. And that's why some of us came to call it the North Atlantic financial crisis. Um, Anyway, uh, after that, uh, and and of course, uh, going back, uh, you can think of the 1980s with the Latin American debt crisis. There had been a significant redefinition of the credit lines of the IMF. Um, uh, There was also a a big push against conditionality in IMF programs. Uh, This was particularly strong uh, after the East Asian crisis again I'll, I'll go back to this uh, but there has been no agreement uh, on how to manage a uh, debt crisis uh, or sovereign debt restructuring mechanisms as they are called okay so the uh, 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 when when a country goes into crisis uh, uh, because of high levels of debt uh, essentially has to do a bilateral negotiation with the with the creditors uh, this by the way i mean some of the big issues here well, you had the big issue of, uh, of, uh, of Greece in Europe, uh, which has not been solved yet. <laughs> um, uh, uh, but of course, the big discussion in, uh, in, uh, in recent years, well, well, the last 10 years was the Argentine uh, crisis, uh, debt crisis. The Argentina restructured the debt in 2005 and 2010, uh, but the, those uh, creditors who did not participate in those restructuring demanded Argentina and one in U.S. courts. And that generated a new wave of discussions, uh, but uh, out of that there has been no decision about how to structure uh, a good international mechanism to manage uh, sovereign debt crisis. So let me go into some of these issues. um, uh, And and I highlight these five five issues uh, uh, for developing countries. Uh, the first one is the inequities, uh, uh, that, uh, an asymmetries of the international reserve system or the global reserve system. Uh, uh, w- what do I mean by that? Uh, as we will see, there are two elements. First of all, developing countries are not sources of reserves, you know, so not developing country currencies. Very partially, the RMB uh, are uh, global currencies. Uh, but second, because of other problems, particularly the second problem, which is the financial volatility that developing countries face uh, in international markets, uh, 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 our countries were forced to accumulate a, a huge amount of foreign exchange reserves, uh, self-insurance, as it has come to be called. Okay, so to protect ourselves against volatility of finance, uh, uh, we decided we had to accumulate. Uh, which of course is, is an inequity. I'll, I'll, I'll come back to this. Uh, so, the, and the second issue of course that is that volatility in financial flows. This is something that uh, uh, developed countries don't face uh, or only marginally so. Uh, you can say peripheral Europe uh, was affected by this problem uh, during the euro crisis uh, of 2011-2012 uh, but generally speaking, it's a problem that developed countries don't face, um, and so volatility of financing is a problem, particularly of emerging economies, uh, more than the low-income countries, because low-income countries uh, have very limited access to private finance. The, the third issue is, uh, is uh, therefore, to, uh, given this volatility to prevent crisis, uh, how you manage cross-border capital flows is quite important. And this has been a subject of, of uh, significant discussion. Uh, uh, after this fail, failure to, uh, to establish uh, freedom in capital movements, uh, the IMF, uh, after, uh, after the North Atlantic financial crisis, has discussed quite a bit this problem uh, and generated what, uh, what I will mention, which is called the institutional view of the IMF uh, on capital account liberalization. Okay. Uh, the fourth is the uh, uh, managing crisis, uh, 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 which is, uh, will see some of the limitations in the emergency financing that the IMF provides uh, and, uh, and the lack of this uh, debt workout mechanism. Uh, and finally, the role <coughs> of developing countries in the governance of the system. So let me refer to these five issues in my presentation. So, in, in relation to the global reserve system, uh, my The analysis in my book uh, uh, highlights uh, uh, three major problems, uh, but I concentrate in the last one, uh, which is the one that is specific to developing countries. Uh, The first one, which you can say is uh, Keynes' problem, uh, I mean the problem that Keynes highlighted in his writings uh, prior to Bretton Woods, uh, is uh, uh, what you can call the asymmetric burden of adjustment. Uh, basically, countries uh, with uh, balance of payment deficits have to adjust. Uh, pro- countries with balance of payment surplus do not have, uh, do not have the same obligation. Uh, and This is a, a major problem of the system, basically because it means that uh, when the only deficit countries adjust, they generate a, a recessionary effect on the global economy. Um, uh, actually, the best case is actually Europe after the North Atlantic financial crisis. Uh, because the countries with huge deficits, let's say, Ireland, Spain, Portugal, Greece, uh, had to adjust and generate a recessionary effect on Europe, and the countries with surpluses, uh, let's say, Germany and, uh, and Netherlands in particular, didn't have expand uh, to compensate for that. Uh, and therefore, there was a recessionary uh, effect on, on Europe. Again, this is a characteristic of the system. is the one that Keynes Uh, highlighted in his writings uh, in the 1940s. The second is uh, what came to be known as the Triffin Dilemma or Trafan because uh, that is strictly the the Belgian name of Robert (laughs) Trafan but in English it's generally called Triffin. Uh, uh, Now the, uh, uh, the, uh, he highlighted the, the problems uh, associated with the use of a national currency as an international currency. Uh, and his point was basically that uh, uh, if a national currency is just an international currency, uh, the country that is issuing that currency, that is the United States, uh, has, to be, has to run deficits, okay? And, uh, and if, the, the, if it runs deficits, uh, then there is a possibility of a crisis uh, of, uh, because of the deficits of that country. Um, so the uh, national currencies, used as international currencies, can also be a source of, uh, uh, of difficulties. And, and the basic problem uh, uh, is uh, actually the volatility of the exchange rate of the dollar. That's how it's reflected today. So uh, after a period of balance of payment deficit in the United States, the, the U.S. dollar tends to depreciate. Okay? Uh, and that, of course, means that the global currency is an unstable currency. Let's say. Uh, You can say compared to the gold, which was supposed to be the stable currency uh, in the Bretton Woods system. And the third problem is the inequities uh, associated with the fact that the developing countries uh, have to accumulate foreign exchange reserves as in self-insurance to protect themselves against capital account volatility. Uh, So this is the... um, So uh, you can say that the two problems of the system is the fact that the developing countries um, uh, do not uh, 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 contribute, are are not the sources of of reserves, of global reserves, and this is the uh, allocation uh, of foreign exchange reserves by currencies. Uh, The dominance of the dollar in blue is uh, is absolute. Sixty percent or more of the global reserves are in dollars. As you can see, also in, in transactions in trade, it's also the dollar dominance. Then comes in uh, 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 the, uh, the euro, and then there are other uh, currencies, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the pound sterling, the, uh, the, the yen, etc., the etc. Et and little now, the Chinese trend maybe, but as you can see, all of those together represent less than one-fifth uh, of global reserves. And, uh, as I said, one of the characteristics, this uh, volatility of the exchange rate of the dollar, which is a characteristic of this non-system, uh, and, and, uh, you see the, exchange, the real exchange rate of the dollar is quite volatile and depends on the fluctuations in the balance of payments. So the red you have here, the ex- real exchange rate of the U.S. dollar, uh, and the, in blue you have the, uh, the current account deficit of the United States. So when there's a huge current account deficit, the dollar tends to depreciate uh, to compensate for that. Now, for developing countries, aside from not being participant in the set, is this uh, issue of uh, having to accumulate foreign exchange reserves. Uh, so, th- this uh, this graph shows the uh, the foreign exchange reserves as a proportion of GDP uh, by level of development. And, and what you see basically is that the core OECD uh, countries basically uh, continue to have a minimum amount of foreign exchange reserves. Uh, you know. Uh, It actually has uh, increased a bit since the North Atlantic crisis, but it's it's only about 4% of the GDP. In contrast to that, all developing countries uh, were forced to to accumulate uh, foreign exchange reserves. Uh, uh, So I have have China on top in in green. Uh, China actually, uh, because of other reasons, accumulated in a huge amount of reserves. Uh, They have been coming down in the last 10 years. Uh, But still, you know, all categories of developing countries uh, uh, basically have reserves uh, which are equivalent to between 20 and 25 percent of GDP. Uh, uh, You know, you go back to the past of the 1980s, uh, you know, they were more similar. Uh, So it's because of the volatility of financing that that all developing countries had to accumulate foreign exchange reserves. Now, foreign exchange reserves uh, are a cost for developing countries. Because basically you um, uh, you, inter- you basically buy uh, treasury bonds, uh, which have very low interest rates. <laughs> so uh, from the point of view of the countries, it's a cost. Uh, it's not necessarily you know they have a benefit of course that's why it's, they are you know, accumulating reserves, but it has a very uh, high level of cost. Particularly, you can think for example uh, of a, you know you accept capital inflows which have a let's say yield of eight to ten percent a year. Uh, and then you accumulate treasury bonds, which have two to three percent. <laughs> so it's a huge loss for the country. For every dollar, uh, you are actually losing uh, something in the order of six to seven percent as a country. Okay. Okay. Now, to reform this system, uh, there, there are two, uh, in a sense, uh, alternatives, uh, uh, which uh, uh, can uh, can actually be mixed in practice. Uh, and I think that. In my view, they should be mixed in practice. Uh, the, the first one is a multi-currency standard. Uh, so uh, Making true the, the, the point that there are multiple currencies uh, that are used as foreign exchange reserves. Uh, so try to de- reduce the, the dominance of the U.S. dollar uh, in the system. Uh, that of course uh, will provide diversification, um, uh, but uh, it's not necessarily the best solution. Um, uh, for, you know, for developing countries, because none of those currencies, except partially the renminbi, uh, will be uh, a global currency. Uh, a second, because they, that, that will generate new instabilities, because uh, countries will then have to manage the instability of the different reserve currencies, which is a problem that we already have, uh, but, uh, but will become uh, even better if there's a, a, a true multi-currency standard. And the, the other alternative is, is to uh, use uh, the only true global currency that the world has, uh, which is this very uh, f- a currency that has a very funny name, uh, uh, which is, a, is a issued by the IMF. It's called the Special Drawing Rights. <laughs> uh, this was a, a, a result of the discussion of the 1960s, uh, particularly when the French were pushing for a system in which uh, uh, not only the dollar it was uh, the, uh, the global currency. And, the, and so the, the special rights were created uh, as a kind of a new uh, international money. Uh, so it's a money issued by the IMF uh, that, uh, uh, that could be more actively used. Uh, is now, all countries that are IMF uh, members uh, get a share, get a, that, that is, uh, they get special growing rights that are issued by the fund proportionally to their quota in the IMF. Um, uh, So you could think of of a more active use of this uh, global currency. So some of us have been working for, uh, you know, to try to push this idea. And there was actually a commission of the IMF uh, 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 three years ago on this topic, or two or three years ago on this topic. And actually, I was a member of that commission trying to support the idea of a more active use uh, of a special uh, donor rights. I mean, the the way I, I think of this. Uh, is that um, uh, you could think that the uh, countries are given special drawing rights. They, they can then use them to pay uh, other countries. We'll see how much they are used. Uh, uh, so, for example, let's say, for example, in, in, in the case of uh, Colombia, uh, Venezuela has been uh, paying some of the debts uh, with the Latin American Reserve Fund uh, uh, with a special drawing rights, let's say. You know? uh, that they have in the IMF, Uh, so it's a a way of using them. If you don't use them, uh, they are totally frozen today. So the proposals, for example, that I have been making for some time, and I think it's probably the best proposal, is that those uh, resources that that are not used by countries could be considered as deposits in the IMF of those countries, and then the IMF would then use those deposits to finance its programs. Uh, this will help to solve the one problem that we will see, which is the uh, inadequate uh, capital or uh, that the IMF has, and, and this would be a, bay, a way to uh, to finance the IMF itself. Now, the, the, the share of developing countries um, in um, in um, in, the, in this SDRs uh, has been increasing. You see, the middle-income countries have increased from 16.3 to 30 percent in the allocation that have been made. Uh, Low income countries have actually uh, uh, reduced a bit. Uh, but anyway, the, uh, uh, there has been an increase, but still, uh, because of the problems of the of the capital or the quotas uh, of the IMF, uh, the, um, uh, the, most of the countries that uh, receive uh, special drawing rights are developed countries. By the way, developed countries have also used SBRs. Uh, you know, since I have done research on this topic, even the, the the UK has used uh, the the US actually has used a special drawing rights in the past uh, during uh, periods in which you know could be useful. So uh, so the uh, it's not only developing countries, but the, the ones that use more the special drawing rights are developing countries. Okay, uh, so this is a, actually a a, a mechanism in which you, instead you are given global money uh, for for as part of your reserves, and then you can use that in as and since those are free uh, uh, resources that the countries receive from the uh, from the IMF, this is actually the the, the story of the um, uh, of the special drawing rights. Uh, how much uh, they are used? Uh, this is a, what we call million of SDRs. Uh, uh, by anyway, the uh, the big. I mean, there have been uh, several issues through history, but the last one, the big jump, uh, takes place after the decision taken in 2009 by the G20. Uh, to issue 150 billion dollars uh, in SDRs, and, uh, at the estimate 250 billion dollars in SDRs, which was the last time it was used. It was. In a, it, it's kind of the same as central banks do during crisis. It, they, in a sense, issue money <laughs> uh, to to manage crisis. This is the same that was done with the IMF, and, and the idea that this uh, could be more broadly used. And you can see the it, it jump. It still, is. Uh, it's a small proportion because of the huge jump in the amount of SDRs in, in the system, uh, but you see this is a proportional reserves. Uh, 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 um, it has been increasing, but you can see prior to, uh, to this 2009 allocation, uh, actually countries were using about 40% of the SDRs. So it's, it's, it's an asset uh, that is actually used, even though it's only limited basically for payments among central banks. So this actually could be an instrument that could be much more broadly used uh, 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 to manage the the reserve system. Now, in terms of crisis prevention and resolution, the the major issue, as I pointed out, is the volatility of external financing. um, This is a problem that is particularly strong for emerging economies because they, they do have access uh, to uh, private capital markets, which are highly volatile. Uh, it's less so of low-income countries, uh, but they're, they're increasingly... Uh, uh, some low-income countries are actually getting also into into private external uh, financing. Anyway, the, the problem is that these flows are highly volatile. Um, so the, you get good years and, pe- and uh, terrible years or uh, even uh, terrible months. Uh, for example, August of this year was terrible, as we will see in the graphs. Uh, it was a huge outflow of capital from emerging economies. Um, some countries may be particularly affected, etc., etc. Okay. Now, aside from the volatility, which is itself a problem, you, know, you have a very unstable form of financing. Uh, uh, the, the, uh, the other problem is that your macroeconomic policy uh, is, uh, 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 is affected in terms of the degrees of freedom you have uh, uh, to manage uh, uh, your macro. Uh, so you have a capital outflow. Uh, uh, you are unlikely to, uh, during a crisis. Uh, during a crisis, you are supposed, for example, a central bank is supposed to reduce interest rates. But if you have a huge capital outflow, you are unable to do that. Uh, and you may have to have to increase interest rates, so do a procyclical policy. Uh, uh, and, the, and the fiscal authorities have the same problem because the, the, the financing that they can get is more costly, or they get no financing in international markets. So they are forced to do adjustment to austerity uh, during crisis. So the so the one of the big problems for uh, developing countries and emerging markets in particular is that the, your macro may become procyclical because of that. There is of course a volatility hierarchy. Uh, uh, foreign direct investment is less volatile. Uh, I, I, we will see, but uh, and there has also been some decline in volatility uh, because of the, uh, of the reserve accumulation of developing countries, uh, because uh, we have also been developing domestic debt markets, uh, rather than rely uh, only on international uh, capital markets, uh, and because of, uh, of growth. Okay? Uh, there was also a major surge after the 2007-2009 uh, uh, North Atlantic crisis, uh, uh, and this is because of the expansionary policies of developed countries, so it became attractive uh, uh, for uh, capital to, to look for developing countries this was uh, what uh, came to be known as the search for yield uh, in international capital markets uh, but two thousand and eight two thousand and nine uh, volatility has returned uh, and quite strongly so this is the story of the um, uh, of capital flows uh, since one thousand nine hundred and ninety but uh, You see the the light blue, which is foreign direct investment, is the largest and more stable source of financing. But the other financing, the portfolio net flows in red and the other net flows, which are basically debt, uh, 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 are very volatile. Uh, So so the the source of volatility in capital flows uh, are generally associated to those uh, sources. And uh, This is just a, a total, and this is without China because China uh, was a major source of, uh, of outflows in 2015 and early 2016. Uh, but still, the, uh, the volatility is quite clear. And you can see, for example, in 2018, uh, the, it was negative. So for example, that's a year in which uh, uh, there was a capital outflow. And, and there are others in the past uh, which had been like that. And this is the story uh, m- uh, monthly uh, for different regions of the developing world. Uh, um, uh, since 2010, you see the the expansionary policies actually generated inflows. uh, But there have been uh, two periods of turbulence, uh, 2015-2016, which was very much associated to the capital outflow from China. Uh, And uh, and then 2018-2019, you see the little red at the end, uh, negative, uh, which was August of this year, which is a, a, a difficult month. Let's say for for us uh, in the in the emerging markets. So for this, uh, the the idea is that that you have to have some management of capital flows. You cannot have totally totally free capital flows, uh, and uh, uh, this is of course a point that uh, that has been recognised by the IMF uh, in uh, in this institutional view that was adopted in 2012. Uh, But very interestingly, uh, it's not in the global financial regulation uh, which is issued by the Financial Stability Board, uh, which has come to be known as Basel III. So Basel III has nothing about exchange rate risk, (laughs) uh, which is uh, probably the major risk that an emerging economy has. Uh, And and therefore, the the institutional view of the IMF actually captured that problem and, and, and has been positive. Uh, But uh, there's another issue uh, which is not uh, uh, less important, which is the the OECD regulations of capital flow. This is important for developing emerging economies, which are members of the OECD. For example, Latin America, Mexico, uh, Chile, and now Colombia. Uh, uh, So We are subject to those regulations of the uh, OECD. OECD is also moving a bit in the direction of the IMF uh, to recognize that there are some uh, Exchange rate risk that you have to uh, allow for uh, in in the system. Okay. So, in the, in the jargon of t- today, uh, these are macro prudential policies that you have to adopt, uh, and uh, and actually, as we will see, developing countries have been doing that. So, the, this is the story of the liberalisation of capital flows. Uh, as you can see, well, the yellow on top is the liberalisation of uh, of the OECD countries, which was very strong in the. Uh, 80s and 90s, and basically today, uh, capital flows in developed countries are liberalized. Uh, That The same trend uh, was typical of some middle-income countries, low-income countries uh, in the bottom have essentially done Uh, non-liberalization, but uh, you see uh, after some point, the liberalization stops uh, for upper-middle-income countries, that is Latin America in particular. Uh, and uh, actually for low and middle income countries, actually there was a reversal after 2008. And the reason uh, 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 this is uh, the opposite, this is how uh, capital count regulations work. This is my own work uh, uh, published by in the IMF economic review a couple of years ago with Bill Ertin, uh, and which you, we estimate, and, and you can see that basically since the Asian crisis, there has been a, a, a tendency to increase uh, capital account regulations, uh, particularly foreign exchange-related regulations, which I think is the dominant form of regulation. Also on capital outflows and capital inflows, uh, but the foreign exchange-related regulations are quite important. Let's say, for example, in my country, Colombia, uh, we are obsessed with uh, the uh, uh, foreign exchange mismatches in portfolios. Uh, so if, if you have a debt in dollars, you, you should have an asset in dollars. Uh, because otherwise you have a risk if the dollar depreciates. Okay? So that's a, a big obsession in our policies um, and, and that's typical as we will say. So for example, this is the, uh, the IMF uh, 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 inventory of, uh, uh, of uh, macroprudential tools. So you see the, 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 the fourth, which is liquidity and foreign exchange tools. Developing countries uh, in, in red use it more widely than developed countries, but this is particularly so in this graph. Uh, in have the, the net foreign exchange positions, uh, you know, 64% of developing countries have some form of regulation of foreign exchange positions. So, so the kind of trend I just mentioned about, you know, for Colombia. So this is a, this is a very important risk that we have. It's not recognized by the Financial Stability Board but it has been recognized by the IMF and in practice we do it. <laughs> we do it and, and actually IMF rules allow uh, to, uh, uh, to use this uh, kind of regulation. This is very important because this is a way of managing. There are other tools uh, other, you know, and even more direct controls that you can use. Uh, for, for, for example, you can uh, limit the debt that you can incur in foreign markets. Uh, 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 we have also this reserve requirement. Uh, that we can use, uh, so there's uh, the too many uh, capital inflow, then you have you, uh, uh, force uh, all those uh, agents that are bringing money to the country to uh, keep some of, the, of that money in the central bank as, as a reserve requirement. Uh, so there are many other instruments that you can use, uh, uh, and, uh, and, and it's, uh, they're used quite extensively. Anyway, this, this uh, graph of different forms of foreign exchange uh, <coughs> uh, tools show that they are essentially do, uh, used by emerging economies. Now, in terms of crisis, resol- or debt crisis resolution, the uh, excuse me, the, uh, you have the, first of all emergency financing, and, and the, the, there have been every crisis. There is a big innovation in, uh, in the IMF credit lines, and, and the 2009-2010 uh, uh, regulations were actually quite good. Um, uh, uh, they included the doubling of all facilities uh, uh, then the, you have this uh, uh, idea that had been discussed for several years uh, about having a, what it a, a contingency facility a contingency facility is basically a, a kind of an insurance that you have uh, yeah. uh, so the, uh, the contingency facility for is uh, that if you uh, uh, run into a crisis you have this credit line uh, available. okay. Um, uh, uh, anyway, th- this idea uh, had been on the, on the table. The, uh, the flexible credit line was the instrument that was uh, created, uh, but only three countries have, uh, have used it. Colombia, Mexico, and, uh, and Poland. Uh, 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 and, uh, but the idea of having a, a, a broader uh, contingency facility has been on the table for some time. Uh, And the the best proposal, in my view, uh, is the idea of a a, a swap facility. The swaps are essentially the major instrument used by developed countries. Uh, Particularly the U.S. Federal Reserve uh, has swap facilities for developed countries central banks. Uh, And during the 2008-2009 crisis, that was the major source of uh, financing uh, among central banks. Uh, It was massively used by the... uh, uh, by the European banks and also by the uh, Japanese uh, bank. Anyway, so the, the, this idea uh, uh, has been proposed by the IMF staff in 2017 and, it, and, and it's also part of the G20 eminent person group uh, 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 that was issued its report last year. Uh, in my view, that's the way we should move to kind of creating swap facilities in the IMF. There is also uh, the conditionality. Uh, issues uh, which uh, were a, a heated controversy of the past perhaps you know you want in the questions I can deal with more but the major reform with the 2002 reform which was after the Asian crisis uh, and the basically idea was to uh, return to the old principle that the conditionality should be macro relevant so it should be on macro uh, economic policies on, uh, you can say on fiscal policy, on monetary policy, and on exchange rate policy, not on anything else. The IMF in the 1980s and 1990s had started to do conditionality on trade policies, uh, on uh, privatization policies, and that, that essentially uh, uh, was a move uh, in, in, in to correct that problem. Now, this is the story of IMF financing. Uh, uh, one interesting point is that the, the top it was during the Latin American debt crisis and the East Asian crisis. During this, this recent crisis, actually, uh, it was not as large relative to the world economy. But it, it still, you need a, a lot of resources, and I'll come back to this, okay? In, in terms of sovereign debt crisis, the, there is no mechanism. Uh, there was an attempt in the early uh, part of this century to create a, a sovereign debt restructuring mechanism that failed. Uh, uh, but the, uh, there has been a, a, an idea of, of doing something of that sort. Uh, so the, the only thing that was done in 2014 was to improve on the market-based mechanisms for debt restructuring uh, between the country and the private creditors. Uh, but it has not... Uh, uh, we'll, we'll see. Actually, we'll see now uh, with the new debt restructuring for Argentina, which will take place in uh, uh, probably next year, uh, we'll see how, how it works in, in practice today. By the way, I have been on, uh, with some others, like Joe Stiglitz, actually for the creation of an actual international panel uh, to manage uh, debt uh, restructuring. Finally, on the governance of the system, uh, there are four issues. Uh, um, uh, I, have, I will say nothing uh, except the, the title on the first one, which is a representative organization at the apex of the system, something that replaces the G20, uh, which will be a representative body, uh, not a a collection of countries that self-designated themselves as the the, 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 uh, leaders of the system. The adequately financed IMF at the center, uh, the voice and representation of developing countries in Bretton Woods, uh, and a denser multi-layer architecture. Uh, so, the, In terms of the, uh, of the IMF resources, uh, we have a, a very frustrating story. Uh, in 2010, uh, as a result again of the North Atlantic crisis, there was an idea of doubling the capital, or as it's called the quotas of the IMF, uh, and the uh, decision was adopted in 2010, uh, but it took five years for the U.S. Congress to approve the, his contribution. Uh, So uh, one of the basic problems is that the system is dependent on the U.S. too much uh, on whether it wants to contribute to the IMF or not. Uh, And actually this year we saw uh, the refusal of the U.S. uh, to increase against the the quotas of the IMF. uh, And and this is one of the major problems that we have today. So the next discussion will take place in 2023. Uh, Now this is a a basic problem, and uh, as I said before, uh, one idea will be to more actively use a special drawing rights uh, as, a, as a mechanism of financing. Uh, the IMF staff and, and those of us who have worked on this issue have estimated that you could issue yearly $2, to, uh, 200 to $300 billion in SDRs and, and that will be uh, uh, even less than the demand for research in the system. Uh, so, you could actually have no p- international problems in terms of inflationary effects on the system. So, this, my proposal is actually for more active use of special drawing rights, particularly the United States uh, continues to refuse to capitalize the system. Now, the Bretton Woods, uh, the, the reform of the Bretton Woods institution, uh, I will just say that the, uh, the major problem is the, uh, the underrepresentation of developing countries in the quotas of the IMF. Uh, plus the uh, uh, two, I would just uh, underscore two issues. The the fact that all seats should be elected, uh, not only that of developing countries uh, or small developed countries. Uh, And and the last one, which is very important, which is there should be a a competitive merit-based election of the IMF managing director and the World Bank President. Uh, Today, uh, the IMF managing director has to be a European, and the World Bank president, a, a U.S. citizen. Uh, this is, a, a, this is the, the only two organizations that have no freedom to elect other nationalities uh, as heads of the system. Uh, the 2010 quota review was interesting, but it was a, uh, a small redistribution. Basically, uh, 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 developed countries gave, uh, redu- uh, reduced their quota by about 4.2, and developing countries go on. Uh, a, a bit, uh, I mean, won that, those shares uh, in, uh, in the quotas, uh, but very highly concentrated in what I call winners. Uh, so basically five countries uh, China, uh, Korea, uh, uh, Mexico, Brazil, uh, and Singapore. Uh, One uh, increases, and, and the rest actually saw a decline. Uh, so this was partly compensated by the, uh, the distribution of votes. Uh, so this this old principle um, that the, the quotas, or, uh, excuse me, the votes in the IMF have two, two elements. Uh, one, which is a basic vote, which is equal for every country. Uh, and the second is uh, proportional to the quota, OK? And this was a reform uh, that was adopted in, uh, in 2010, by which the, the, the share of the basic votes was increased. And I think that helped in particular, uh, you see the last one, which is the low income countries. Uh, which had actually experienced a reduction in, in, the, in the capital they contributed the quotas, but they saw a little increase in their votes in, uh, in the system. And generally, the, the developing countries as a group uh, won more votes, uh, 5%, uh, than the quota, which was 3.9%. Uh, uh, and finally, uh, uh, my, my last proposal is that we, we should have a multi-layer architecture. Uh, but by that I mean uh, 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 the architecture of the international monetary system in which aside from the global institutions, you have regional institutions, sub-regional institutions uh, uh, which uh, uh, will actually contribute to, uh, to balance the system. Why so? Because the, the regional institutions and the sub-regional institutions have the advantage uh, that there is a sense of ownership of them by the smaller countries. That you don't get in the global system. So you are a small country, uh, your voice in the IMF or the World Bank is small, uh, but you could have a stronger voice in, uh, in the regional institution. Uh, and therefore there's a, a case for, for having uh, uh, something like that. Now that is the system that we have in the, develop- in the multilateral development banks. Uh, so my idea is that we should try to replicate that in the international monetary system. Okay, uh, and I'll finish with these two graphs. Uh, this is the story of the uh, of the uh, multilateral development banks. Uh, you see, the, except for actually East Asia and the Pacific, uh, uh, the mix of uh, the World Bank Group, the regional development banks, and the sub-regional banks uh, imply that you know there's a you know there's a, a significant sh- a balance between the membership uh, in the in the multilateral development banks. Actually, it's interesting that this stage is so low, uh, which I think is why I think the Chinese are correct in trying to uh, increase the uh, importance of multilateral development banks in East Asia, uh, which is what they have been doing, okay? uh, particularly the Asian Infrastructure Bank, uh, which was their, their idea, and, and now the New Development Bank, uh, which is the BRICS Bank. In contrast to that, look at the system <laughs> uh, in the, multi- in the monetary, international monetary system. Uh, except for the European Stability Mechanism, which was essentially uh, uh, enhanced uh, after the North Atlantic crisis and particularly during the Euro crisis, uh, the rest of the funds are small, uh, almost as insignificant let's say, in the system. So there is a significant role that you can think of, of having more uh, regional balance of payment facilities. Actually, in my region of the world, we have a very good one, which, although small, is actually the uh, and the fifth one, uh, FLAR, the Latin is, uh, Fondo Latinoamericano de Reserva, Latin American Reserve Fund, uh, which actually has been quite useful for our part of the world uh, in terms of uh, uh, of facilitating financing during crisis. So this is my, the last element of my my proposal, to have a more uh, multi-layer architecture also for the international monetary system. Okay, uh, this is the publicity, this is the book. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, it's called Resetting the International Monetary Non-System. Uh, as I said, uh, you can access it uh, freely uh, through the uh, University Press or through the United Nations Wider Institute, which is actually the publisher. So it's actually an excellent book for you to read. OK. <laughs> Thank you.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much, Antonio you'd like to take a seat. We have some roving microphones in the room, um, and we still have some time for, for questions, comments. People may want to speak about other, um, other topics that you haven't touched on vis-a-vis Latin America developing countries more generally. So I've got one question in the white sweater back there, and then another one over here in the red to follow, and then we'll, we'll take them in rounds.
3: Hi, um, thank you very much for giving me the word and also for your magnificent presentation. Um, I would like to ask if there is a way out to the uh, vetoing power of the U.S. in the IMF. So um, any reform to remove the veto power of the U.S. can be vetoed by the U.S., so is there a way out uh, to solve that asymmetry of power? Thank you very much.
0: And why don't we take the other question there just next to you. Yeah. We'll take them two by two to start.
4: Um, thank you, Jose Antonio, for your presentation. And my question relates to capital flows. Uh, so given the, the environment with low interest rates, there's been an increased outflow of capital flows from private investors into developing countries. And I'm wondering um, how, you, how you see the IMF mitigate um, like the increased volatility in case, for example, a central bank in an advanced economy were to raise um,
0: interest rates. If you'd like to take those two, and then we'll...
1: Yeah, well, on, the, on the first one, uh, I guess we have to have a U.S. president, which is more friendly to multilateralism, but that's a, a little detail. <laughs> but uh, no, actually, from the point of, view of the governance, uh, uh, I didn't get into that, but the, the other issue that has been discussed for a long time uh, is to, um, uh, uh, to uh, uh, let's say, uh, make it more difficult to veto decisions, uh, which uh, will be uh, basically if the uh, weighted vote for a decision uh, is 75%, which is the proposal, rather than 85%. 85% keeps the U.S. and only the U.S. a veto. Uh, a, actually, a collection of countries could also veto. I mean, for example, France. I mean, if France, uh, Germany, and the U.K. go together, It could also veto, but uh, but it's more difficult to to veto. But the U.S. can veto. I mean, what happened with the um, uh, with the capital increase or the quota increase of 2010 is that the contribution of the U.S., uh, which was a bit more than 15%, was essential uh, to the for the decision to be effective. So you could actually reduce, eliminate the veto power. Let's say, Uh, and that's what has been in the agenda for some time. Now, on the capital flows, uh, again, I think what the IMF can do is, uh, again, uh, uh, continue uh, discussing what sort of macroprudential policies to regulate capital flows are useful for countries uh, and defend those mechanisms, uh, which is something that is, uh, again, in the uh, it's actually being discussed today again. by the way, there is a, a very interesting institution, I don't know who have taken a look at that, but the IMF has an independent evaluation office, which is quite good. That was, it was created after the East Asian crisis, uh, and, and they do reports on issues, uh, excellent reports. Uh, so I, I would recommend you to, to look at those reports, and actually, I'm participating in the one they're doing on, on, on this issue of the institutional view. Uh, that's how they're doing. But the, the IMF itself has been this, this, uh, revising the institution. Uh, that's one thing. And the other is actually to have uh, financing mechanisms to to promptly uh, respond to volatility. Uh, again, developed countries do have it, which is the, the swap credit lines. Uh, so my idea is that you could develop in the IMF something like that, which is in the jargon of the discussions what I call contingency facilities. Uh, the swap credit lines are... By the way, the, uh, the, the use of the swap credit lines was massive in 2008-2009. I estimate it was about five times the size of the IMF. Wow. What are the patterns? <laughs> Is that developed to developing? or? No, or? it's basically developed to develop. Uh, developed to developed. Yeah. It was basically fed credit uh, lines uh, uh, to the uh, Bank of England, to the European uh, Central Bank, to... Bank of Japan, etc., cetera, et cetera, Only four uh, emerging economies were allowed temporarily to access them, mm. uh, which were Mexico, Brazil, uh, uh, Singapore, and Korea. Uh, Mexico, for example, did use it, uh, uh, interesting. But they weren't allowed to use it for about a year and a half. And then they were suspended again. So it's a, it's a cent- Swipe facilities among centers. By the way, the uh, Bank of International Settlements used to do that this quite a bit in the past. Uh, but the Fed has essentially taken up that route. That you could actually do it the, the same with the European Central Bank or uh, for, uh, anyway, in different ways.
0: Okay. So there's another hand.
1: Yes, over here, please.
0: And then back there in that corner. Uh, so thank you-, you so much, Professor Ocampo.
3: It's a real honor to have you here with us. Um, I have a couple of questions that may be not that related but definitely relates to the role of the IMF and the International Monetary System. And it's on something I like to call the political economy of debt restructuring into the different interest groups that have to do with how debt restructuring is managed and negotiated. And what role do you think private creditors have in keeping the system unregulated and those difficulties in regulating the system uh, in terms of debt restructuring? And uh, a second question that I have is, That suspicion against the IMF in different countries, especially in Latin America in Argentina, the courts against the paquetazo of the IMF in Ecuador, of the government of Lenin Moreno, do you see any merits of that suspicion uh, in the political arena uh, on the role of the IMF in these countries?
2: Thank you very much for your fascinating uh, speech sir. I wanted to, to ask, in, in your presentation you mentioned that the IMF has changed its approach to conditionality after the uh, Asian financial crisis of 1997. uh, By focusing, by conditioning IMF assistance primarily on macroeconomic policy rather than uh, changes to supply side policy or trade policy, do you think that perhaps there could be a merit to reintroducing some elements of conditionality which would help improve the long-term economic performance and competitiveness of economies suffering from balance of payment problems?
1: Okay. Um, well, the political economy of debt restructuring um, is, of course, uh, uh, a, a very controversial issue of different sorts in different places. Actually, because um, I guess a, a, a in the in the case of the uh, a, a attempt by the uh, the IMF to reform the system, or uh, in two thousand two, two thousand three. Uh, Actually, the United States uh, was the country that presented the proposal and then it withdrew the proposal. <laughs> uh, and, and of course, the basic issue is that the, uh, the countries that are the source of financing, uh, not only the United States, but also Europe, let's say, uh, do have a, uh, a question mark about the desirability of, of subjecting this to, uh, to international rules. Uh, by the way, uh, there is one mechanism that works. Uh, which is the Paris Club for official credits for official lending. And, uh, and, uh, and you could think, the, you know, those of us who propose something like this is something like the Paris Club. Uh, for, uh, by the way, it has been a subject to a, a significant opposition by private creditors from developed countries for a long time. Now, in the case of a, a surprise, however, is that sometimes the developing countries don't want uh, something like that either. Um, eh, and they, they prefer the current mechanism, which is a, a pr- kind of pr- a voluntary negotiation between the parties. Eh, uh, eh, I was actually quite active in this issue, in, uh, in uh, eh, after the uh, eh, the demand on the on Argentina by 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 uh, U.S. traders, um, eh, eh, it was a mixed view, by the way, in the in the case of the. Uh, uh, of the U.S. courts, uh, because the, uh, initially the, the U.S. government, uh, as well as the U.K. and um, France, for sure, uh, uh, actually backed Argentina's position, that if these creditors had not participated in debt restructuring, they should have no rights. <laughs> uh, 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 but at the end, of, when they went to the Supreme Court, uh, the, the, the U.S. back from that position and did not go. So the, you can say the official positions can actually be more uh, balanced. But what I was surprised actually is that when the discussion was take, took place in the United Nations to have a, a kind of a principles on sovereign debt restructuring, uh, uh, to, for, to my total surprise, Argentina did not back the idea of a debt restructuring mechanism of an institutional character. Um, and not, neither did Russia. For some reason, Russia was also involved in that position. So it's, it's, a, it's quite a difficult issue. But uh, anyway, so we have to see. So my my proposal is basically a Paris Club uh, for private creditors. They say for, for sovereign debt with private creditors. Now the two the questions of conditionality are of course linked. Uh, the um, uh, the uh, uh, the 2002 uh, uh, was a major agreement on conditionality, uh, which I think was quite positive and, and did reduce uh, IMF conditionality on what is called structural issues, on trade, on uh, privatization, etc. Uh, by the way, this independent evaluation office has a good analysis of that. I mean, It has a full report uh, on implementation of these uh, conditionality rules. So the idea, however, is that uh, you, uh, you, the IMF does include macroeconomic conditionality, uh, because it has to guarantee that, the, first of all, that the funds are paid to the IMF, <laughs> uh, but also that the, the country becomes uh, macroeconomically uh, sustainable. Uh, and that continues to be a major topic, a major discussion, because uh, 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 and it has certainly been one uh, in Ecuador, uh, it was also in Argentina. Uh, 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 you see actually, the new government of Argentina for that reason says, said that it will not use the additional funds. It has no use of the IMF loan because they don't want the IMF to uh, to be uh, intervening in the, uh, in, in the IMF policy, in the Argentinian policy. But anyway, the, uh, the big question, however, is who is guilty? Uh, is the IMF the guilty partner? or is the country a guilty partner, or both of them. <laughs> uh, because after all, you know, when countries go to, to the IMF because they have a big imbalance, uh, and the reason why they got a big imbalance. So I, I think they, there's probably no solution but uh, to have some form of conditional, of macroeconomic conditionality, and that macroeconomic conditionality may be uh, uh, a subject of, of course, of tensions. Uh, by the way, one good thing that has also happened in the IMF over the last 10 years or so uh, is the uh, the, the uh, a good research and uh, good analysis that has been done by the IMF on how to eliminate the social costs of some of those programs. Uh, and I think they, they have actually quite a good research. By the way, some of the... Uh, it's quite interesting research of the IMF, on for example, on income inequality and, and the relation between uh, macroeconomic uh, issues and the income inequality, and actually also, by the way, on gender inequality. <laughs> they have good uh, research on gender inequality. <laughs> anyway, this is uh, areas of, uh, uh, of research. Uh, by anyway, the way, in the case of, of macroeconomic programs, they do have a, an interest, and in, in all their programs, they do include elements uh, to to they say to reduce the social cost of restructuring, for example, how to protect social spending and social spending for the poor in particular.
0: More questions? Yes, back there, please, and then over here with the striped shirt. So we'll begin back there. Thank you. Thank you.
3: In the U.S. monetary system, we have the Federal Reserve acting as a lender of last resort for supposedly solvent institutions. And we have the FDIC, which is acting as a restructuring uh, for insolvent institutions. Do you think that the IMF being restructured in two separate entities would help in that regard?
2: Um, in the case of Argentina, to what extent do you think the new government will have the. Excuse me,
1: can you speak closer? Louder?
2: To um, in the case of specifically in Argentina, to what extent do you think the new government will have the space or possibility to impose capital regulations uh, now that the debt with the IMF is taken and the, they're having conditionalities and pressure to liberalize financial markets?
1: Okay. Um, the, on the lending of last resort, uh, I mean, the, the mechanism that the countries uh, central banks have uh, vis-a-vis the, their own uh, uh, private agents, uh, banks in particular, uh, is something that you cannot replicate at the international level. But you can replicate the swap arrangements, okay, which is the mechanism that the U.S. Fed and actually other central banks have Uh, to support. uh, My proposal is that we should have a kind of IMF swap arrangement. and I think that that's a lending will Yes, but the question is, since the IMF does both the swaps and the
3: conditionality lending, maybe two separate?
1: Yeah, the swap arrangement, by the way, uh, will have no conditionality, but uh, it may have it should not have. I mean, for example, the flexible credit line that Colombia has and Mexico has uh, does not have any conditionality. It is an unconditional credit line. Uh, but but the countries that can classify are selected according to certain criteria. Uh, so you could have the same in the case of the swap credit line. So we have to. That's a big discussion about how to select uh, beneficiaries. Uh, now, uh, uh, on the on the case of Argentina. Uh, I, we have no idea what the new government is going to do. <laughs> uh, it has announced that it will not use the additional funds of the IMF program uh, because of the conditionality associated with the, with, with that. Uh, but of course, the, the new government uh, will have to do some uh, 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 adjustment, uh, and particularly the debt uh, w- uh, is going to be renegotiated. I okay? mean, they have announced. That and and it's a big, and it would be an interesting discussion of how they they manage that.
0: Okay, we have a question down here, please. Um,
4: Yes, thanks for that most comprehensive analysis. My issues are three main problems, call them that, in terms of you mentioned the question of governance, crisis regulation and the problem of under-representation in G77 in terms of Asia and and the the South, the G77 countries in terms of development economies. In your experience, you mentioned that the IMF tends to force other countries to run deficits, in effect creating greater problems in terms of foreign exchange reserves. And the question of crisis prevention, do you not think the new architecture you mentioned should include the regional institutions, for instance, an African monetary fund or an Asian monetary fund based like onto the AIIB, for instance, of China, to restructure international finance in in a more democratic and multilateral manner?
0: We have one back here, please. Sorry, just behind you. Thank you.
3: Hi, Professor. My question is one of optimism um, in these torrid times. Um, I, particularly on the governance perspective of the IMF, there has been a lot of amazing research recently, particularly around tax base erosion, a recognition of profit shifting in sub Saharan Africa, on gender, as you mentioned. Do you think these are token gestures though? Because my concern is that is the IMF actually ready to cast off its kind of imperialistic mode? Um, from your perspective, do you think that's likely? Have I got a reason to hope? Or is this just another gesture from another big institution? <laughs> <laughs>
1: I actually like the IMF doing research on this issue, I'm <laughs> particularly, you know, interesting uh, where they can actually incorporate that in the in their policies. Uh, but it has been actually good. I mean, actually, some of the best research on the uh, uh, on determinants of, uh, of global economic inequality, for example, have come from the IMF uh, in recent years. Uh, actually, also on these capital account issues, actually. Uh, uh, I mean, it is the IMF researchers that do the best, it's some of the best work on the volatility and the implications for developing countries. So, so I, I, I will add actually one, which I am I'm, I'm quite involved in the discussion on international tax cooperation, uh, which is in the hands of OECD. Uh, and I'll tell you, I, for example, the global meetings uh, or the, the annual meetings of the IMF, uh, we actually did, uh, ana- you know, have a, a panel on that issue, uh, and uh, one of the conclusions is that the IMF research on the implications of international tax cooperation for developing countries is much better than the OECD research. <laughs> so actually, uh, one good thing about the IMF versus OECD, for example, in p- that particular case, it has developing countries as members, so it has to respond to, uh, to members. Now, on the governance and, and the, the role of, let's say, of, uh, particularly this issue of Africa, uh, I, I think the, you can say in the governance of the IMF, uh, you could think of a, of a mechanism by which, uh, uh, I mean, the, this, the way it has been going is actually more basic votes. I, I like the idea of basic votes. Uh, having, uh, they were triple in... Uh, in 2010, you can increase a, a bit more the, uh, the basic, but that's the only way to have a small country uh, a, uh, with a bit more of voice. Uh, but you could actually think of, of a, a special mechanism for a, a small and poor countries. Uh, for example, a, a kind of revision of the decision of the IMF that go to this uh, panel, let's say, that will t- have the possibility. So countries could actually go to, the, to a panel inside the IMF uh, to uh, to say, well, this this debt restructuring or this program that they that was uh, imposed uh, or this analysis of the uh, IMF staff on, on my country's position is not fair. Okay, so you you should think of it, kind of a, 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 a special mechanism of defence uh, of small and poor countries, uh, but for Africa, uh, as for Latin America, as for any other region of the developing world. I think having a real institution is good. Uh, no, uh, so in uh, Africa, does have the the, uh, the Africa Development Bank? Uh, so you could think of having a kind of a uh, 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 monetary fund of the of, of Africa. Uh, uh, so it's in, uh, uh, it has to be very technical, and uh, 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 because otherwise it will not work. Uh, but uh, but yes, you could. Think of, of designing a mechanism of that sort, it will be good. As I said in our region of the world, we have the FLAR, which has eight Latin American members, uh, and it's quite good. It's a very good institution. It has supported almost all countries at uh, uh, different times, and, and actually with zero conditionality, by the way, and has lost no cent. Actually, it was the most active during the Latin American debt crisis in the 1980s it, it, when it lent to uh, all members, uh, and uh, it lost no sense.
0: I have a question for you, if I can abuse my role as chair quickly. Um, you mentioned earlier in the day about how financial liberalization has worked so badly in Latin America after the 1990s, um, but it seems to have worked much better in other regions of the world. So I, I'm wondering why, or, or is my Um, is my assertion
1: wrong. In what regions of the world has it worked well? (laughs) (laughs) Of the developing world? Of the developing world. Well,
0: in in, uh, in East Asia, for example.
1: Oh, they they have not liberalized. They haven't liberalized. No, they have not. (laughs) They they control capital flows much more than Latin Americans. Uh, So it's actually... uh, uh, I mean, the, the only that was forced to liberalize was Korea, Because of membership in the OECD, Uh, but actually Korea also back up, back off uh, partly uh, after the 2008. Korea,
0: Taiwan, China, Vietnam, all relatively liberalized.
1: compared oh, to where China, they were before. China is total control. Still. Well, they were, they were totally closed before,
0: now they're open well, to...
1: Well, but the liberalization is much less than a typical Latin American okay. country. I, I grant you that. yes. <laughs> <laughs> so no, they, is, that the, I, is that the answer, then? It's a question of degree. No, the east e stations... Uh, uh, actually, by the way, this is an old issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I still remember the Hong Kong meeting of the IMF. Uh, uh, that, uh, it's interesting because it was the year of the Asian crisis, 1997. and. Uh, uh, and uh, I was actually shocked in my discussions. Uh, I was uh, then Finance Minister of Colombia, so I, uh, uh, I was shocked with the views of the East Asians Because in Latin America at that time, uh, we were in favor of domestic financial liberalization.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But, uh, uh, but we're more prudent with external uh, financial liberalization. And, and the East Asians have actually the opposite view. But actually, they back up from that. Uh, I say from both, from domestic. Well, do, uh, Korea was forced uh, during the IMF program that they had to do a bit of domestic financial liberalization, but they generally don't like uh, uh, financial liberalization. So they are much more prudent. In uh, even Korea today, uh, is much more prudent uh, in, in financial. For example, on derivative markets, uh, is quite active to regulating them. And anyway, so it's. It's unclear. I, I generally think my view is that East is much more regulated than we are.
0: Okay, okay, good. But I think there's time for, for one more question. But before I close, let me say that we have a, an informal reception just out here in the foyer where I'm told we also have 30% off uh, vouchers for anyone who may want to buy a physical copy of the book. But as Jose Antonio said, it's, a free, it's free for download as a PDF also if you prefer that. Um, anyway, do, do stop by and, and say hello if, if you have a few minutes more. And one last question over here in the red. Yes, thank you. <coughs>
2: Okay, um, hi. This is going to be way different to all the other questions. Um, as the idea of the IMF for the 21st century, how is, um, as another thesis, the idea of promoting e- regional economic integration and also economic complementarity As a, instead of looking inside of the institution, like pushing this agenda, how would it be or how would it work?
1: I mean... My point at the end was that uh, uh, we should try to have a strong regional institutions, together with a strong IMF, mm-hmm. so kind of a complementary institutions, even sub-regional. You can think of. So mm, I, no. I, I have no problem. Was that the question or no?
2: No, no, no. Um, what I'm referring to is that uh, to, to promote policies that reflect um, in regional integration, as for ge- in a geopolitical way. Pushing for other unions internationally, um, following the pattern of the European Union, and as for economic complementarity, I'm referring that um, as for the landscape that we have with the environment and all that stuff that is going around, that trying to connect economies that could help each other
1: out. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, we should have more uh, regional integration projects. For example, I see that you. uh, For example, Africa is finally moving. I mean, Latin America is a disaster uh, because we have been creating uh, regional financial, uh, regional trade uh, integration processes, and we uh, we constantly dismantle them. We are actually going to see a big fight now between Argentina and Brazil on Mercosur. Uh, But for example, Colombia, Venezuela, which was the second uh, trade flow uh, within Latin America, totally collapsed. Uh, First for political reasons and then Venezuela withdrew from the Indian community. Uh, Anyway, so so we have created institutions but they don't work. And I think one basic reason I will underscore in Latin America uh, is that you have to create institutions like the European Union has done, uh, which are persistent despite the political shifts in individual countries. So, so a conservative and a left-wing government will continue to be part of the, of the union. In Latin America, we have been unable to do that. Uh, so the political divisions between countries generate divisions within uh, the integration processes. But it's trade integration, uh, are you, are you, uh, maybe what you are saying, perhaps on the environmental issues, uh, we should start having some regional cooperation of uh, different sorts. Uh, actually, for example, one in which uh, the U- European Union has and uh, an we have in Latin America essentially nothing in some science and technology. Uh, so the science and technology is actually quite a European system. Uh, in, uh, in our case, for example, the, we have essentially no regional cooperation in science and technology. Uh, anyway, so I think regional cooperation is good in many fields. Uh, Uh, I I like actually the idea that the Africans are moving into a more uh, kind of a free trade agreement among African countries, which I think is a a positive step. And Actually, there's also this uh, big uh, uh, Asian uh, agreement uh, uh, being negotiated now, uh, uh, which involves China, Southeast Asia, India did not become a member, but uh, it's a big uh, uh, free trade agreement in, in Asia. Uh, Anyway, so I think those agreements are good. I mean, somehow the, the global, the regional complementarities, I think, are good in almost any field of multilateral cooperation.
0: Okay, excellent. Thank you, Jose Antonio, for such a fascinating presentation.